Okay, friends, uh, welcome back. This is Inside Out with James Catledge. We've reached a point in the story where the unthinkable seems possible. I would say that we're, we're at that moment where things are bleak. Things seem not just uncertain, but seem like pain and suffering is unavoidable at this point. And it's in these moments that we have to think about our potential our capacity, our willingness to endure. And for me, I can tell you that the thing that helped me the most were my friends and my family. Uh, my faith did play a key role in this, uh, my ability to get on my knees and understand how to pray, and understand how to talk to a, a loving Father in Heaven who I felt had me in his grasp and felt that he wanted for me what was in my best interest. Those thoughts, that, that ability to take action toward those thoughts, I think saved me. And I, I just want you to know, as you're facing your own dragons, maybe you're not facing them now, perhaps you are, you, you have to take action in the face of demise. You have to move toward the dragon. Running from the dragon will always get you burned up. So you, you need to move forward toward the dragon. For me, and you're about to hear, I, I consider this the valley of the experience. And you're, you're going to hear some episodes where you think, oh, no, that was not the valley. This is the valley. And I think from an outside perspective, it probably will feel that way. And, and I think it just goes to show, having lived through it myself, that the mind and your perception and your, your ability to manage in, incoming fire will dictate not just how you survive it on the other side, but how you survive it during it. Because it's during it. I, I found these amazing friendships. It was during it that I built this amazing bond with my son, Nathan. It was during it that I, I found a, a new switch to turn on inside of me that got me closer to my kids, that, that showed me my real value. I, I realized, I think, during this difficult period, during this intense suffering, I realized that I am not my career. I am not my profession. I am not this thing that I got so good at. I'm not this thing that paid me so well. I'm actually much more than that. I, I'm much more important than that. I'm a dad. I'm a good friend. I'm a smart guy. I, I, I have at attributes and strengths that extend way beyond my profession and what I do for a living, which is where this, and I put in air quotes, this reputation idea. I think this is an important interlude for you to consider. Who are you? How do you value yourself? And until all of those superficial things were taken from me, literally, removed, forced away from me, 
Did, did I get to look inside and say, who am I? What, what value do I bring? And, and I was able to answer those questions. And, and that allowed me to endure it well and have a positive experience. And you're going to hear it. I, I had a couple of texts come to me that said, hey, James, make sure you stay positive here. <laughs> well, the story is not a positive story. But the outcome is, the, the reality is, and, and I'm going to tell the story as it happened. You're getting the story authentically as it occurred. You're getting my mindset. You're getting my fears. You're getting my weaknesses. You're getting the strengths. You're getting the, the friendships. You're getting the things that really happened in real time. And so some of it's not positive. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Life is full of pain and suffering. And it's what we do with it that dictates our destiny. This is Inside Out with James Catledge. Welcome back. It was early on in my legal battle, 2010. My lawsuit against the developer had been dismissed by the judge. The judge felt that an investigation probably needed to take place, that not enough facts were available for him to make any type of judgment. All my company's clients are now at risk of losing their condominiums they purchased they purchased through my company. New lawyers are now swirling. Each of these clients has needed to seek their own lawyer. At least 10 new lawsuits had been filed, naming me as one of the defendants. The government was now finally interested in investigating the case. I had reported this case four years ago. I was concerned that I had found my way into a criminal enterprise unknowingly. I had reported the Elliots four years previous, and now the government's interested. Of course they are. A federal judge says they should be, so here they come. DOJ, SEC, and of course, the FBI. I was going to get calls from friends now, letting me know that the FBI had just been to their home, had interviewed them. I also learned I needed to hire a new kind of lawyer. I was not sophisticated enough to realize that criminal defense lawyers are breeding to themselves, almost a classification of lawyer that I didn't even know existed. I thought a lawyer was a lawyer, and I had plenty of them. Why would I need a new kind of lawyer that needed new money? Just in case I was the target of the FBI investigation, it would be important for me to hire this new kind of lawyer, a criminal defense attorney. I'm not a fearful person. I don't live in fear, nor do I spend any energy whatsoever playing the what-if game. I don't go there. I try to deal with what's in the windshield in front of me. I try to make decisions based on the data that I can see with my headlights out the windshield. But the heaviness was palpable. All of these circumstances, all of this litigation, all of these people seem to be eroding my power to cope. I'd begun playing racquetball blow off some steam at night with a dear friend, Leon. Leon and I would stay up from 8 p.m. till 11 p.m. when the gym closed and they threw us out. We would play racquetball four or five nights a week. We talked and beat each other's brains out several times a week. And on this particular night, around 11.20 p.m., I arrived at my driveway. And as I made the 100-yard push up the hill beyond the gates, at the bottom of the driveway, I took note all the lights in the home were off. 
All six babies and mama were sound asleep. I pulled into my stall, nearest the outer edge of the house, and I didn't want to get out of the car. I thought about each of my children, one at a time. I went room by room in my head, thinking about their lives, their total lack of awareness that dad was under siege. They didn't know anything was wrong. At least that's what I had hoped. I clicked the overhead garage door button, and I just sat there as the door came down. Eventually, the overhead light in the garage went off. A few minutes passed, and I thought to myself, one day, one day, I'll pull into this garage, and all of this will be over. What will that feel like? My mind went further down this thought pattern. No more news articles. We've been featured in all the local media. My case was now getting publicity. Each journalist, of course, tried to do their job, of course, misrepresenting the truth because my new lawyer won't let me meet with any of them, so they never get my side. No more parents approaching me or my wife with that suspicious look in their eye. They don't say it, but I can see it. No more rumors at church that weaken the strongest of us. One day, one day this will all be over. So I decided to stay in this exploratory thought stream, in total darkness, in my car, in my garage. I said to myself, what will be different if it all ended tomorrow? If the cloud was lifted, the cases were settled, the government rendered their judgment. If it was all over tomorrow, what would be different? I began answering my own questions. Friends will say, I'm glad it's over for your sake. Strangers will say nothing because they don't know it's happening. Bad friends will already have faded because they faded early. It was so clear as though heaven was literally directing my thoughts. The only thing that matters in this moment in the darkness of my garage is my mindset, my internal confident spirit. I decided in that garage on this night in 2010 that I would face this cascading legal tidal wave as an event in my calendar only, and I would face life with my head high and my shoulders back, and I would talk with anyone and everyone who needed questions answered, and boy, there are so many questions to answer. I would face this dragon head on and not be twisted or eroded by the nastiness of litigation. I exited my car. It was dark. I stumbled toward the door of my home. I then went room to room looking in on each child as they slept. And I assured them in my mind, almost resolving myself on their behalf, that they were going to be okay because dad decided tonight that it is over. I sat with the older kids the next day with Tiffany in tears as I explained at a high level that dad had been accused of something he did not do and that it was probably going to be in the newspaper and we would be fighting these false allegations. Later that week, we met with the kids' elementary school principal in our home. She was graceful enough to want to come into her home and have this discussion. This gave her clarity about what the accusations were 
and what the other teachers had been spreading, she can now handle it, she said. I can honestly say, since that day in 2010, in the darkness of my garage, I actually won the battle. It was over for me that day, not over in reality, but over spiritually and mentally. The weight was lifted. The energy had returned to my body. My optimism has never left since that moment. There was obviously a foggy, long, winding road still ahead, but my mind would be my asset through each and every twist and turn. The lesson for me, friends are friends forever, and great friends pull in closer during tough times. Great friends are nurturers. They just want to be there and let you know they are there. The waiting for the drama to end in order to feel good again was a myth created in my mind. That myth was busted. If I created the myth, I can destroy it. That night, I learned a life lesson about me and about tragedy, trauma, drama. Deal with every challenge head on, but don't imagine challenges that are not in existence yet. When they are not real, they're fantasy. Don't add to the drama. Life is tough enough. Why allow my attitude, my strength, my imagination, my creativity to work against me? It must be used as a weapon to fight the battle. I decide to handle every situation, every lawyer call, every court appearance, every lawyer meeting. That's another item in my calendar. They will be written down. I would make my appearance and I would prepare before them, but I would not fear them. I would not dread them. I would live my life and enjoy every moment in between. No more fretting, no more fear, imagining the worst. Boy, the brain can be so dangerous when you're not in control of it. I now only deal with real issues that life presents in real time. You can learn a lot in the darkness of your garage. This, this garage experience, which is recorded in episode one of this podcast, and we've replanted that episode right here because this is where it occurred in the timeline. I can honestly say that the peak of my fear is in this moment, in this garage. It's the world does seem to be closing in on me, and uh, and I'm really a guy that spent my life having answers for problems. And, and even, even if it takes a few days to kind of come up with a solution, I can usually come up with a solution. But this seems too difficult to cope with. And so from this experience, which I believe I was assisted from on high in that garage, I believe I was given help, I believe I was given strength, I believe I was given courage, I believe I was given the will the will to get control of my mind and, and begin to use it as an asset uh, and, and, and frankly remind myself that, that I am capable of this. I can handle this. You, you are designed for this moment and we have to all do that. We have to all remember when things get darkest, when things seem most difficult, we have to remind ourselves that we were designed for this moment. And that there's nothing about us that didn't bring this to our life and can't help us extricate it from our life. And so 
as I woke up the next day with a renewed sense of hope, and there's, there's such a long journey to go, but for whatever reason, I feel hope. And boy, I needed to feel it because there's a lot of work to do. And there's work to do to save my family. There's work to do to save my business. There's work to do if the client will let me to save them. Lots of work to do. And of course, I've got to defend all these lawsuits. And I've got to find a law firm that's licensed in all these states. And, and so that becomes project one. And I had a, a very close friend that I went to church with suggest that I get an executive physical. Now, this is probably not the first thing that comes to your mind when you're under siege. But it made sense. He called it a CEO physical conducted by Scripps of San Diego, where you go in, meet with Scripps, uh, their executive team. And I, I want to say it's like a $3,000 physical. And they in one day have you meet with like nine doctors, you're on a treadmill, you meet with a psychologist, you meet with a psychiatrist, you meet with a cardiac specialist, you meet with a nutritionist, you, anybody and everybody that you can meet with that can examine your body and your mind, and you leave with a binder. You leave that day with a three-ring binder of baseline information about your mind and your body. And uh, the psychiatrist at the very end, he said, uh, he said, we've examined everything here today. I have your binder here. He says, is there anything you want to tell me that would uh, play into the results that are in this binder? And I, I said, you know, I've got all this stuff on my mind. And I said, I said, first of all, is this, is this a protected meeting? Uh, do we have uh, doctor-patient privilege in this meeting? And, and for those of you who don't know what that means, it means much like a minister and a, and a uh, person that's going to church, those meetings are confidential. Your attorney meetings with you and your attorney are confidential. The doctor and the patient have the same type of privilege, which belongs to the patient, by the way. The privilege is the patient's. And so I just wanted to confirm that what I'm about to share or discuss is protected by that privilege. And he said, absolutely. There's nothing that we can discuss in here that I could share with anybody outside of here without your permission. And I said, well, there is a little matter of litigation that I'm dealing with. And uh, it's, it's both federal and civil. There's federal investigations and civil investigations. And the reason I wanted to do this physical was kind of to find out what type of shape I'm in uh, mentally and physically, because I think the road ahead could be daunting and I think it could be tough. And I wanted to kind of see where I'm at. If, if, if I'm in any type of trouble, I wanted to address it now because I think it, you know, I, it could become worse. And he said, well, I'll tell you this, inside this binder, there is no indication that you're under any pressure whatsoever. I said, well, that's, that makes me question your, your examination process. I said, because I'm under tremendous pressure. He goes, well, you're managing it well. He says, I have two suggestions for you, and they're not prescriptions. The first suggestion is you need to become very physical, physical, like physical fitness, lots of it. You need to become very strong. He says, that's advice number one. My second suggestion is you need to become very creative. He says, the imagination has an unbelievable power to allow you to endure. It releases different hormones, different neurochemicals. It, it releases things in the brain that allow you to endure difficulty. He says, creativity. He says, learn a musical instrument. Start a new business. And I'm thinking, well, I may end up having to do that. He says, and get strong. I was already in pretty good shape. 
I always kept myself in pretty good shape, but I could clean up my diet, you know, my nutrition, and I could get in better shape. I knew that. I could become stronger. And so I left there that day with my binder under my arm, climbed in my car, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to do both those things. I am going to start a new business while I could try to save the one I'm in because I love the business I'm in. I loved what, I loved what we did for clients. I love that we made a difference. The, the name of the business was Impact America. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make an impact, and I felt like we were doing that. And so I loved it. I was going to fight to save it, but I was actually going to start a new business. I thought that creativity suggestion was great. And I had lots of ideas, things that, that I, I thought would be valuable. And you'll hear more about those later. But I leave the, the scripts physical, and I, I have a meeting scheduled later in the week with uh, an attorney friend of mine. And I'm not, I have a lot of attorney friends, but this is just a friend who wants to talk to me about my situation. He had heard from another friend, we play golf together, he had heard from that friend that James was in a bit of trouble. And, and he, concerned for me and my family, wanted to take me to breakfast and have a conversation. His name is Brian, and Brian's a lawyer with a very, very large law firm, maybe one of the top three law firms in the world. Been a lawyer for 35 years, uh, and so I really respect his view of things. And he said, he said, why don't you lay out for me what's going on, what you're facing, and, and I want to give you some advice. And so I, I lay it out for him. And, and he basically said to me, I, I think you've done all you can do, and I think you should rest your mind on that. I think you've done what you can do. He says, clearly, the road ahead, there's more you'll have to do. But I want you to know, as your friend and a lawyer, I think you've done what you can do. You've not turned your back on anyone. You've not done anything inappropriate. He was really reassuring me. And now, this is the next thing that I didn't know until in the middle of this breakfast. Brian says to me, now, you know my wife is a federal judge, right? And, of course, I did not know that. I said, no, Brian, I didn't know that. He says, well, let me tell you what I shared with her. He goes, because I knew a little bit about the situation. And, and so I shared with her, and she said to me, and, and, and I got permission to tell you, she said, this is likely going to end up in front of a federal judge. She goes, it won't be me because I'll have to recuse myself because I know, know your family. She says, but let him know this will likely end up in front of a federal judge. And it's very important that he understands this. The truth is the first victim in all litigation. There will be victims who lose money. You will be a victim. You'll be a victim of loss of money. You'll be a victim of maybe loss of business. You may be a victim of being accused of things you didn't do. You too will be a victim, but the first victim in all litigation is the truth. And I, I, I was so deep, I was having trouble processing. I said, what do you mean by that? Because in my mind, I thought, surely all these lawsuits, they're just going to want to know what happened. If the federal investigations, surely those guys with the white shirts and ties, they're just going to know what happened. And if I can get them the documents, if I could get them the box of information that we had already run across the street to the criminal chief in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Vegas, if we could just get them the truth, get them the box, now that they're interested, several years later, they're interested. If agents are going to visit, 
surely they're going to want to know the truth. And I am a possess- in possession of the truth. And frankly, I'm on the right side of this deal. I- I- I'm in a great position to inform them what the hell happened. And so Brian said, please, please hear me. The truth, sadly, is no longer what you need to be chasing around. You need to figure out the lay of the land, the terrain. You need to figure out if you're a target of a federal investigation. You need to figure out if they want you as a witness. You need to figure out exactly what the lay of the land is. This is no longer about you turning over boxes and emails and trying to get people the truth. The truth is no longer anything that's going to come into play here. He says, and that doesn't mean you should not tell the truth. Whenever you're asked anything, you should tell the truth. But the truth is already lost here. Litigation doesn't really have a good forum to tell the truth. It, it, it's done in piecemeal. And he begins to explain to me how, how the criminal justice system works. He, he begins to explain to me how the civil system works and how it, it's, it's done in witnesses. It's done in pieces. It's done with paper. And for every paper, there's going to be a witness. And it's really about putting puzzle pieces together, not about a continuum of the truth. He goes, there'll never be a moment where you sit on the stand under oath and tell everything that happened. Never. They'll interrupt you. They'll stop you. They'll prevent you. That's just never going to happen. They'll put you up there and force you into a box to, to spell out the narrative they need you to spell out. That, that's how you'll be used in every other witness. And this is all happening. This explanation is happening to be within a week of my dark garage experience. And Brian is making it clear that I need to stop chasing myself with these boxes and these emails. And surely someone wants to hear the story. Surely he says, you need to stop that. You need to figure out the lay of the land and develop a strategy to help you survive the terrain. And so that was the wise advice my friend Brian gave me at the lodge at Torrey Pines for breakfast. This is Inside Out with James Catledge.